0: All right, today on the podcast, we have formerly of Cracker Jack Rescue fame and currently of Ronan fame, Craig McClure. Yes, he's joined the tribe and uh, come on board and he's running operations for Ronan Rescue USA. Want to introduce him again to all the podcast viewers because instead of just listening to me drone on, we might get Craig to run a couple of these podcasts with some folks from the United States of America and uh, you can listen to him drone on. How you doing, Craig? Good. Um, I'm glad
1: you've hit the high points of my resume, my ability to drone on endlessly. I appreciate that.
0: No problem. Um, I guess before we get started with what we're going into today too deep, um, you've just finished up a little bit of training for some search and rescue teams. You just finished up some lightweight uh, testing you know, you've been busy, I take it.
1: Yeah, it's almost like COVID is gone, but it isn't. But we've decided to go back to work. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. Yeah, it's, something. it. go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's been good. Uh, it seems like that maybe the, the dam has broken on the COVID backlog. I'm hearing that from other trainers as well, that people are getting back on rope and then getting, getting out to work. Uh, so we went down to Albuquerque, went to the PJ school down there. Uh, they graciously gave us the coolest training tower I've ever seen. It has a helicopter fuselages mounted on the top decks. Two helicopter
0: while fuselages. They wouldn't, while uh-uh. they wouldn't,
1: yeah, they wouldn't let us. They wouldn't let us drop stuff out of the helicopters. They did let us use their space. So it was that was awesome. Uh, made a pretty good dent in what is our goal for nine mil systems or eight mil systems, and we'll get to that in a minute. And there then uh, last week. Last week, I actually found uh, my limit for comfort on height. That was uh, an interesting day. How many feet? I found out that uh, just over 750 feet of clear space from the bridge girder to the river below.
0: It always gets nice up there, doesn't it, at those heights?
1: Yeah. Throw in some wind, and it's an open bridge with uh, truck traffic bouncing over your head.
0: That, that, That does it for you, does it?
1: It does. Yeah. I'm...
0: I'm glad it was hot because the cold sweat up my forehead just looked normal. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I remember being a thousand feet under my feet up at uh, Yosemite once. And I remember just standing there looking down and, you you know, and it goes to your mind. And it's always, you know, I got time to think about this if the rope breaks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was, it's exactly the conversation we had with the students that the difference between a hundred feet and a thousand feet is just the amount of time you screw the end result is a given.
0: Exactly. What do they say? 32 feet, the height of fear? But we digress. Yes. Um, so today, what we want to chat about, tailing, lightweight systems, testing, ASAPs, human redundancy, and risk-benefit analysis is kind of like a whole bunch of small little topics there.
1: Yeah, don't blame me. You made the agenda, but you get okay. started.
0: There you go. Well, let's start on the easy one um i guess tailing and human redundancy kind of come in together and i know we've chatted we had a bit of a podcast earlier about tailing i know mikey from um, mikey stevenson the rope access podcast we had a conversation about tailing on there i think that comes out in a little bit actually and so i just want to get your views on it like we've got this human redundancy let's define that first and let's talk about how that moves into tailing so what do you think is human redundancy I, I guess to
1: take it literally, um, it would be two humans stacked on top of each other. But that's hard to that no single person can cause catastrophic loss of the load. I, I, my guess is that's what we're pushing at.
0: So what we're saying there, right? if you and I are operating system,
1: table. if I if I let go and if I let go and you don't, no one dies.
0: There you go. So. Is that a problem in our systems these days? What are your thoughts on that? You're doing a lot of testing, a lot of lightweight stuff. Is this an issue that we need to address? So
1: you've trapped me because I go back and forth on this depending on the day. I'm frustrated that we think we need it. It's Thursday. Thank you. Um, And there is no dateline north to south. So it's the same day. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I do go back and forth. I, I wish we didn't need it. And I would hope we wouldn't. And then every now and then I see him see a circumstance with an operator and I'm glad it's there. So I don't think it's always possible, especially like you do the same stuff. You work in, in small teams and in weird environments. And you don't always have an extra person to give up to hold rope. So I think it comes back to how skilled are the operators. I think at some point there's a tipping point. Where we can trust the operator, and we've we've all been in that situation. You look up, you're going over the edge, and you look at certain people and think, I hope there's someone backing them up. And there are other people where you don't really care because you know they can handle it. If that's a clear answer, uh,
0: it's not. Is it go back and forth? So with tailing, is there specific devices that you feel need to be tailed more than others, or generally, we're defeating a controlled descent device? we may want to chat about tailing it or what are your thoughts?
1: Uh, I would, I would lean towards tailing the MPD pretty often. Okay. That device, you, you really have to, you have to do two things and overcome the braking mechanism. And it takes a while for the human to react. Uh, the, I mean, even the initial testing, the BC hydro testing, your neighbors found out how important the human factor was in that device. Um, so I think that's high on my list. I'm, I'm not as concerned with newer devices. Uh, the clutch has, has really good control on the brake strand. You can actually stop the load, uh, with the handle in its lowering position. If you have good, if you have good brake control. Uh, so there, I think if the operator is doing well, I'm not as concerned. Um, we did, we just did testing on, on ATCs dropping heavy loads. And we found pretty frequently that that the natural breaking mechanism of that worked pretty well. Okay. But that's a skilled operator device. I don't know. It's a tough call. So I, I, and I think that's point. the best answer I can give is I don't know.
0: Okay. You bring up a good point, though. Do you think break hand skill, if that's you know a word or a reference point, do you think that's fading with some of these devices? I mean, a lot of us old guys started on eights and racks. If you let go of your brake hand, you fell to your death. Like that was just the way it went. Um, Cause we didn't have two lines either. But do you think that in training the newer generation of rope rescuer and not having those, you know, instant catastrophe devices that the brake hand skill is starting to fade?
1: You
0: know, that's an interesting
1: question. And, I'm not sure if I would have thought to if I would have thought of it without you asking, so I'll give you credit for something today. Excellent. I I think yeah I I think I think in quick in quick hindsight in the 15 seconds you gave me it is I see a lot of people even even still in the MPD feathering the handle they're using the device to create friction rather than opening the opening the device and using their using their hand which is what you should be doing. All of these devices, you really should be opening the device, removing the brake and then controlling friction with the, with your grip, not even your grip strength, but in feet angle. That's the most important thing, right? Where do you put that brake strand? Okay. We were all really good at it. You know, that that's Munter, right? (laughs) We all got really good at it with Munters and eights. Well, you had to, otherwise things got difficult very quickly. Correct. There wasn't a cam to roll over and lock off.
0: So I guess that rolls in. I mean, we've dropped a couple of hints here. Eight mil testing. We've uh you've we've have done some testing on the eight mil systems, and you've got a course coming up in Moab down there in a couple of weeks that you're gonna put some of this out to the field and you know get some feedback from end users. But generally in the tests, like eight mil, is this gonna be a, a usable system? Like what are we looking at for weights and loads? Just off the top yes. of your head. The answer is yes and yes,
1: uh, but I want to I want to put the caveat on this at the beginning. Um, as with any testing, um, we're not done yet, so n- nothing n- nothing is finite. Uh, if if I were holding a magic eight ball, um, it would come up. All signs point to yes. So we went into this looking for a viable eight mil system. And the testing group I had was actually pretty uncomfortable with that approach. Um, We started testing, looking for a result rather than testing just to see what would happen. And it, it was an interesting way to do it. So our hope was that we could find an eight mil system that used commercially available devices in some combination. It wasn't necessarily proprietary and would pass a standard that the cranky people in the room at IDERS would accept. Wow. And IDERS isn't our measure. Yeah. IDERS isn't our measure. In fact, I kept telling the test team, I don't care if we get an IDERS paper out of this. I want to get a functional system that we can teach people and stand behind. And I think, I think we're close. We're really close. Um, so we tested.
0: Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, without getting too deep, what's, um, what loads? Cause I think people will be a little interested in the loads that were being hit on this. So we picked, we picked
1: three tests that people would recognize. Uh, we picked the ASTM standard which allows you to use variable load from 100 to 200 kilograms, depending on your situation, which is interesting in that test because ASTM says they essentially stole their test from the British Columbia Blade Composite Test. It is the same test. It's one meter drop over three meters of open service. Uh, And we tested at both 100 kilograms and 200 kilograms. And then we looked at NFPA-T, which will make some people roll over, that we used NFPA. and It'll make some people happy. <laughs> uh, but when we took off our jaded NFPA blinders and looked at the test, it's interesting. Uh, they followed the logic that we like, which is if you're going to go lighter weight, maybe you should not be engineering in one meter drops. And maybe you should be using a reduced load. So the NFPA-T is 60 centimeters over three meters of rope in service at 136 kilograms. Okay. And I didn't ask you, but I hope you're going to agree with this because we're all now one family. (laughs) That if you're going to go out and use eight millimeter rope, you probably should be reducing the load and not putting 600 pounds out there there it is there's the american i use pounds for you and maybe you shouldn't be maybe you shouldn't be setting up one meter
0: edge falls well and the, it brings up really interesting points with that and um for everybody in the room that's not in the metric system so the people in america um <laughs> those people remember we got to the moon but go on <laughs> <laughs> we're still gonna do that are we Mm -hmm. Um, so 136 kilograms into pounds is 299 pounds. So 300 pound. Um, and I, sometimes it's hard to reduce the load. I'll give it that. I mean, you got a couple 150 pound dudes. Well, you know, you put Ken and I on a rope and you're probably pushing more in the lines, uh, 500 pounds, not 300, but I do agree with the limiting of edge falls. That's a, an interesting idea. So, uh, you said three tests. What was the last one? ASTM NFPA.
1: Yeah. So use ASTM at, at two masses, 100 and 200, okay. and then NFPA, uh, reduced fall at 136. And interesting because we didn't want to do more tests than we had to. We started off by just comparing on no device, knotted ropes, uh, what was, what was the real impact difference between ASTM at 100 and NFPA at 136 kilograms? Because the distance is different, but the load is different as well. And we did a few drops on that and found there really wasn't much of a difference. So if you, incre- if you increase mass, you decrease fall distance. If you decrease mass, you can increase the fall distance, right? It, that logically makes sense but those engineers have been doing that for years yeah and and it came out to very similar peak force results uh so we just used the astm at 100 so we kept the
0: one meter drop and that's 100 kilograms or 100 pounds just for the listener 100 kilograms i'll stop using pounds for you okay so 100 kg which is um, what are we looking at there? 200 and some odd pounds, 220, 220 ish. Yep. 224 ish kind of thing, I guess. Um, yeah. And you found a successful combination that would arrest that fall. We found a successful
1: combination that would arrest the 200 kilogram fall, but you have to have an adjunct in to release it because it jams. But it doesn't. It it remains functional. Doesn't damage the rope or the device. And we found a system that is we think highly reliable at this point at 100 kilograms, still with a one meter fall. Right. What uh, I want to What uh, I want to add to that is the the class I just did uh, in, in California. We had an MRA team, and we talked about this one meter edge fall issue. And I let them brainstorm ways to reduce the one meter fall. And in about five minutes, they had fourteen options for how to set up your system and how to run it, and how to manage your load that didn't have a, didn't have potential for a one meter fall.
0: So, looking at these sort of things, the one meter fall, either reducing it. Did you look at all at anything like a screamer in the system, like an ASAP sort of thing that's going to create that distance when the mask gets applied? Or was this strictly controlled descent devices commercially available?
1: Yeah, if there's anyone in France listening that works for a company in the giant yellow logo, an eight mil ASAP would be rad, but we don't have one. Uh, so we 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 did look at screamers, but we found by the, when we when we got to our successful system. We didn't need it. You're pulling numbers that were low enough. We were, we were pulling numbers under six K in hits. And with it, with a little bit of slip, but still less than a meter of slip in the system. And it was pretty reliable. Uh, it took not a skilled operator, but an educated operator. We had to tell, you have to tell them how to run the system. And it simply came back to using a redirect on the brake strand of the rope. If you just put in a redirect, it worked.
0: Right on. We won't give away Friction. all the secrets in the sauce. Yeah. Maybe there's, a, you know, a class yeah. or something people can attend and figure out the rest of it. Um, yeah, and we don't. We're
1: not. We're not trying to be cagey, uh, but we also need to put this through a little bit more human trial and put some more numbers behind it uh, before we we get bold and put it to the world and say, "Go forth and don't fall."
0: Yeah, and so that's kind of what the MOAB class is a mix of. They're going to spend a little bit of time actually proofing this and seeing what human problems come in, that human redundancy issue.
1: Yeah, and the other part is we did all of our testing on single rope systems. We weren't dropping on a twin tension system. So if we take these same systems of two ropes in service, the ability to have a large edge fall reduce, reduce significantly and, and the load applied to each side reduces significantly. So we still have a huge
0: margin below our results
1: for adding in a second rope.
0: Right on. So yeah. eight mil, maybe some of the way forward. Um, and just because people are going to ask what eight mil rope were you guys uh, banging away on down there?
1: Uh, we used three. We used a PMI eight mil, and I'm remiss and not remembering exactly what it was, uh, but it was a it was a blended sheath uh, tech core. We used uh, Sterling Canyon Lux, which is for the the TAC people is the same as the OpLux rope, and then we used a uh, an eight mil from Blue Water that uh, we really liked. It is a it's a full tech sheath over tech core. It ha- The only thing in the sheath is just a single color tracer strand. And we found that sheath with its low carrier count and that rigidity to be a pretty solid performer.
0: Right on. So rope does matter is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I used to be a rope as rope guy. And I know there's a, I know we have a mutual friend, Cliff, who will roll over in his in his not yet grave when I say this, but. I really did think rope was rope and I didn't really care that much. Uh, what I've learned is, is you decrease the diameter, the construction of the rope and the, the construction between sheath and core becomes incredibly important. I don't think we're going to get to a point. Where we say any eight mil work rope works. It's going to be prescriptive. It'll be specific ropes.
0: Well, that makes sense. And I mean, what would a podcast be without throwing a shot out at Cliff, you know, with his hazmat background?
1: It's the normal. And what I've learned is if you say Cliff and NFPA, an alarm goes off in his apartment to tell him to pay attention.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> um, and it's interesting. Now you say you used the NFPA test, and that would be the belay test in the 1983 standard, I'm assuming. Yep. Now it's interesting because nfpa eight mil rope and the devices that were being used i don't think any of that gear was actually nfpa 1983 rated was it no not at all so there's something that you know when people talk about nfpa and it's definitely got its pros and cons out there in the world but there's a standard taken out of nfpa the blade test that we you utilized but we're using nothing NFPA as far as the rope or the equipment went with it, just pulling out that test. So, I mean, these are things people will need to realize is look through those standards and there's good things in there to utilize and there's reasons for it There are. and go out there and go, you know, go forth and read those and play with them.
1: So it is, is, is the same as it wouldn't be a podcast between us without mentioning cliff and NFPA. It wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't throw a hand grenade. Okay. So here's the hand grenade. I think some of the test reasoning now aren't valid for the way we operate, the gear we have, and the systems we use. Some of our tests are 20 and 30 years old.
0: I would agree with you. We were supposed to do some testing in May, but COVID shut that down, and I'm going to keep my mouth shut a little bit more because we're now doing that testing in the fall, and I think there's going to be some interesting results out of that. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so now that I've thrown that little grenade, the reason… I wanted to, we as a group wanted to use those tests. We didn't want to come forth with a system and say, whoa, sorry, I just got buzzed by a giant hornet. Um, you can edit that out, fix it in post. Uh, we didn't want to come forth and say, here's the system we like, and we didn't use these tests because we don't like them. That That smells of a shortcut. I would much rather come forth and say, Here's the system we like. Here's why we believe it's safe. Here are the tests it pass. And we still believe the tests aren't the right test. That's where we're headed.
0: Cool. So that's the eight mil part of it. I want to touch on two other things that we've spoken about. One is the tests on ASAPs? Because I still get a lot of comments online. You post a picture, putting the ASAP locks with Absorbica lanyards, uh, not Absorbica rope, I uh, was access um, zorber lanyard sorry and yep. place of prussics and we still get the oh my gosh i can't believe you're not dead yet uh we did some testing on this we did an iter's paper on this in you know three minutes or less what were the results with the asaps because you were you know paramount in that testing back in the day where you came up and then we had some guys go down with you we actually went to Petzl and ran it a yep. bit more in depth. So just some of that, please.
1: Yeah, so we tested series one. We presented that at Eiders. And my statement there was, if it, if I'm on the rope, use ASAPs, not prusix Flat out. That's, that's, that's what it told me. We then went to Petzl, sat down to them and said, throw all the darts you can at our testing and our results. Tell us why you don't think we can do this. So they gave us a few ideas. And we went back and we spent three days in Salt Lake. And what we did was confirmed that that is a beautifully engineered piece of equipment. It is nearly impossible to defeat it. And no matter what we did, we couldn't drop the load, no matter how we cut the system apart.
0: Now we're talking specifically on Reeve systems. That's Norwegian and English. Inside Correct. of a high line. So just those so people Correct. don't go out there and try something, you know, like running off their roof with it or something now.
1: Yeah. Okay. Good point. Yeah. So in terms of high lines and reefing systems, we couldn't defeat it. We also worked on the recovery question. So if the system fails and you land on a locked ASAP, what's its residual strength? So we took some tests where we had very little rope left below the ASAP. It was hanging on a short tail. Uh, We took it over to the drop tower and we dropped on it again with it locked and it still held. And then we took it over to the slow pole and we pulled it till the device failed physically damaged and bent the device. Uh,
0: So you're pretty comfortable doing that at this point.
1: Yeah. I am uncomfortable watching people use prussics in that situation, thinking they're going to catch a failure.
0: The other question is, I just intervened. you remember what was it test five in our first series when we did it we grabbed one of our members who's rope access trained um you know he's got a few years under his belt doesn't use prussics 100 because much like the break rack and the munter some of these older skills have faded we had him operate the prussics and then just hands off we dropped it and the whole thing caved into the ground if i remember correctly
1: Correct. Yep. That was the only way in our testing we dropped the load was to put prosex back in the system. But like the BGs and bell bottoms, prosects are coming back. They're just coming back in the form of asymmetric eye-to-eye prosects.
0: Yes, we've seen a lot of testing on those as opposed to your triple wrap tandems. Yep. Correct. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff going on out there, and I think that's probably a whole podcast in itself, Prusix, because that would be, then we could just go and hit play at Eiders, because we have to have something on Prusix. Yes, that is true. Yep. Uh, the, other, the other one I want to bring up, and this is something that's been funny between us, tension lines or spanned anchors, I view them as a different rigging technique, but generally it's a horizontal line, two of them that you rig your system to, and then go over the edge based with that as your anchor point. And I know there's a lot of people, this is another one on Facebook and social media and tweets and all that stuff where people look <laughs> and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're not dead yet. Um, and you had a really, you I think you were maybe more leaning towards, I don't use them as much. And you've played with them a little bit more now. And you came up with a really interesting conversation the other day. And I just want you to repeat that. You remember that conversation? Is this the one about the goat in Vegas
1: or is this different?
0: This is different than that one.
1: Okay. All right. Not that conversation. So yeah, I wasn't really what three, two or three years ago, you guys introduced me to the concept of span anchors because I'd come out of the wilderness world that uses really climbing manuals as is Genesis for anchor building. And it would be sacrilege to break the critical angle in that world. And I saw you do it and I thought, that's cool. That's kind of a party trick. And I ignored it. And then I started digesting the math and realized they're fantastic. And the conversation you and I had was maybe we're looking at them all wrong. Maybe they are force limiters. And instead of them being a use them if you have to situation, maybe there's a use them because you can methodology with them that because they have a spring to them and they absorb force, and as they absorb force, they decrease their, their own critical anger. Though this cool kind of self-healing loop, maybe we should be looking at them as looking at them as force limitations rather than just an anchor option.
0: That's my crazy idea. And I think just so to be clear, because there's some terminology here we're kind of talking tension lines here for the rope access people. And a line that's rigged one side on a device that slips. A span anchor to us is generally tied, fixed and with a clove hitch on the other. And we can sit here and argue about clove clove hitch slippage at another day. But it's, um, yeah, we're talking more tension lines. So when the device peaks out, it spins out a little bit of uh, rope. You've got a catastrophe knot in there, so you don't get inertial runaway it flattens the, or I guess doesn't flatten the angle, but opens the angle up a bit more yeah. so that you decrease forces and the whole system, I mean, I think it goes back to that first one, mass and distance, right? Like we're now increasing distance of fall, which is lowering the amount that the hit that's going to be at the other end of it. Correct. It's it's like the reverse crumple zone in a car. So that was interesting. And I mean, I like the way that, you know, you think about that.
1: So I've I, mean, I I played with both, and I'm not even I'm even more I guess more liberal than you are with it now. And in fact, in every means of the world, I'm probably more liberal than you. But in in terms of in terms of span and tension anchors, Hang we on. played it as an American,
0: later. tell a Canadian <laughs> that they're more liberal than us. I'm. I'm in a socialist country from Pete sake. Yeah.
1: How's the, how are those, uh, how the shots working out? Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, I just got to pass the roadblock <laughs> to go to work anyways, carry on. <laughs> uh,
1: so we had some non-believers in a class in Salt Lake, what, six weeks ago. So we set up a short, uh, span anchor and a short tension anchor. It was probably 18 feet side to side. We had them tension it as much as they could with a three to one and a clutch, we let them pull on it as hard as they wanted until it was a flat, flat anchor. And then we took a 175 pound dummy and started dropping on the anchors. And just with the stretch in three strands of 11 mil on that distance, it was a non-event on the anchor.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it was device slip never, never even came into play at that point.
0: I've only seen device slip a few times in there. And we were doing things we probably shouldn't have been doing. (laughs) That's
1: how all good things happen.
0: Yes. So, but even on the span anchor, I know a lot of people up here, for instance, um, PC Search and Rescue, it's in the manual. A lot of places aren't teaching it because they're afraid of it. You can basically tie that line as tight as you can make it by hand. And there's still enough rope stretch in there that you're going to get into the 120.
1: Yeah. And I think part of this is, you know, five years ago, who had load cells? Who was re- how many people were able to set these things up and see what was really happening? We had to adhere to flat drawings and books that don't flex. Yep. And when you look at them as is a non-linear thing happening, that there's there is there's stretch happening at the same time there's deceleration. There's a lot more going on than you can put on a piece of paper.
0: Absolutely. So last little topic here that we had uh around was risk analysis or risk benefit i guess would you know be part of the same conversation and there's you know conversations now that you see the memes on facebook you know fight a fire from the outside what are you a cop you know stuff like this um you mean you know, everyone, fire goes, home, but What's everyone that?
1: goes home but everyone goes home but the homeowner that statement
0: yeah well there you go uh, <laughs> you know, is fire department becoming too risk-adverse? Or is the military becoming too risk-adverse? Or police department's becoming too risk-adverse? You know, is rope rescue becoming too risk-adverse? And I guess it's a it's a conversation piece. You look over in Europe and they'll make patient ask, access with single rope technique. And there's a matrix or a risk-benefit analysis, basically, they have to do in order to deploy certain teams certain ways. Um, and it's something I don't think we do a lot of in North American rescue is have that team lead, look at that risk benefit analysis and go, do I use one line here? Do I use two? Do I use three? Um, You know, and what's your thoughts on that with, you know, coming from the back country more, do you see risk benefit analysis done in the back country? And now that you've started, you know, pushing harder into the industrial world, is it, does it have the same you know, metric being placed on it between backcountry and industrial. So, kind of two questions there.
1: So, I'm not sure if there's a
0: different risk benefit happening. I think there's a different
1: baseline for accepted practices. You bring, you bring, you build a backcountry team. You get a bunch of climbers and mountaineers that that come into your team. Working single rope isn't foreign to them. They they've, they have already accepted that risk and and realized that it's. Not that significant if it's done properly. So they, they just come at it with a different framework. Um, kind of to quote the big cat, you know who I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, Arnold, we can talk to him,
1: talk about him on here. Yeah. Where's the pile of bodies?
0: That is a total Arnold statement, yes.
1: <laughs> it is that that's an Arnold quote. Where's the pile of bodies? I'm not advocating we be cavalier and unsafe. Um, but I I do think we are, we are at times too slow to be effective because we built in so many layers of redundancy and safety procedure that we're not getting the job done in the right amount of time. And the, I, I'm okay, single rope. I'm okay with students going single rope. If, if they meet a few criteria, one is, are they skilled on the device they're using? Is the environment normal to, the way, to where they train? So they're not doing it for the first time in the snow in the dark. Is the anchor solid? Is the fall line protected and known? And is the edge edge or anything the rope could hit taken care of? Yeah, that's that last
0: statement's the big one. I mean, when you go and work with the guys in Europe, no single rope can go over an edge. They basically have to put in re-anchors into the systems. And sometimes that slows you down to the point where there's really no point in doing it. But that that's a big thing for them as well. So it's a good point to bring up. But carry on.
1: You uh, know, if I if I ever wanted to just bail out of the rope world and end my career, um, I would either uh, join forces of the Canadian company, which I've already done, <laughs> or or I would present this topic at Eiders. Why is accepted loss zero? Wow. That, that, that's a podcast
0: in itself as well, isn't it?
1: It's not. Look, you go through a law enforcement academy, they tell you, look around, one of your friends in this room is going to get killed on the job. It's a known
0: loss. It's interesting. Back, um, I used to be a union advocate for fire department years and years ago, believe it or not. And I go to these labor school type things. Oh, you are up here, not OR. But um, we, go, <laughs> we go there and they're talking about work safe claims. <laughs> And, you know, they ask the question, you know, how many people here have been on a, a work safe claim? A bunch of people with their hands up. And, like, I don't even give it a second thought. Like, I'm on a work safe claim every year and a half when I was a fireman. Like, it's whatever, right? And then you look around and you realize the only people in the room that are on work safe claims are firemen. Like, everybody else they, in this room, you know, have never been off for an injury. And I, I see what you're saying there. Uh, you go down to Colorado Springs with the International Firefighter Memorial. And, you know, we put a guy on that wall two years ago, I think, now it's yeah, you're right. Like you go to work and it's at some point during your career, you're going to lose people, whether you like it or not.
1: And I'm in no way saying that we should be putting people on that wall, right? Every one of those is, is someone's family impacted forever. Absolutely, um, I, I understand the impact of it, but if we looked at the numbers across first responder, fairly high risk professions the risk draws the people we want to do the job. Let's not let's not lie about that first. So we
0: get why the did I join we, the army at 17? Was it because I wasn't looking for a good time?
1: I, I was gonna guess because reform school is your other option. Yeah, but exactly. yeah, you you did it for the adventure, you did it for the risk. And I, I again I'm not suggesting that, that that risk should should pay off in a negative way for people. But we approach rope like it has to be a zero possibility, zero risk event. Is the number one in 100,000? Is the number one in a million? Is the number one in 5 million people going on rope? If we broke it down to rope hours per person, what would it be? And are we engineering and are we practicing to a one in 10 million? What's what's the event we're protecting from? and, And what's the reality? So that's the talk I would give that would that
0: would get me booed off stage and then I could move on to something else. Although it's an, I, I do agree, it's an interesting concept. I mean, you sit here and I go to a rope rescue call and then I ride home on my motorbike, which is probably <laughs> infinitely <laughs> more dangerous than what I just did. Yeah. yeah it's the risk you're willing to take. And I guess, like you say, the people in this industry that are, you know, when we said a couple of years ago, who wants to go to Europe and jump out of airplanes? Like we filled the class without a, any issue at all. It's it's the mentality of the people that are attracted to these professions. And you know, like you say, OK, then we go and do grip trading. We, we were just jumping out of planes where the fatality rate is a lot higher than what we're doing on Grim. But nobody really gives it a second thought. They trust their gear. They understand the risks to which they are exposing themselves to. And they've come to accept them. Yep. Um. I bring it up and I I don't want to get too far down here because I'm not at all criticizing anybody with this. The teams that went and did this worked within their skill sets that they had, which is top down rescue. And they spent, I don't know, I'm going to go and say four or five hours. I'd have to look at the numbers. I was there, but we're talking four or five hours to lower a person that cliffed out 30 feet because to lower them 30 feet, they had to hike to the top. And do a 900 foot lower, well, 870 feet to get to the guy, and then lower him the 30-35 feet. And this is where you talk about this, you know, why I wanted to bring this up is these teams do not train for bottom-up rescue. They do not train to climb. They do not train even to aid. Like, hey, I can't climb this hell. Just give me eight bolts and I can I can aid this thing at this point. But they're not. That's not in their wheelhouse. Their wheelhouse is top down two-line systems. So when you climb, even if we did it, you know, did a trad climb or back into a, theoretically a single rope system. Um, so, like I said, good people working within their parameters, five hours to do a 30-foot lower because of the way the parameters are put around them. And I would suggest the parameters are put around them because somebody has done a risk-benefit analysis and said, we're not teaching our people to climb. We're not teaching them to aid and we're not going to allow them to go up on one rope and skittle across to this kid and pull them down. Even if we can pull two ropes up at that point, and just do a redirect and lower them from the ground. So with that in mind, you know, with what you said there, do we need to push further on this? Are we just sitting at the cusp right now and we need to speed these things up for the sake of the people involved?
1: Tough call. Uh, To to go back to that scenario, it's an interesting perception of risk because when you described that to me for the first time a while ago, I had time to think about it. And if you think it, look, we're talking about what could happen climbing. If you look at climbing accidents, if you read accidents in North American mountaineering every year, more people get hurt going down than going up. Yeah. So is the climbing really a perceived risk or a risk? Is it more risky to climb 30 feet or lower 900 feet? Oh, I think I know what the answer is in my head, but. Absolutely. I mean, add in, I assume they didn't have 900 foot ropes. Nope, three and they were and they ropes. were in the, and, and they were in the dark. By the so end of doing, it, yes. <laughs> they're doing knot passes with 900 feet of rope out, plus the rope stretch, plus all the fall line deviation, all the rope drag creating potential rock fall for 900 feet. When someone could have climbed 30 feet while someone held a flashlight below them to light the way and gotten it done. I think it's perceived
0: risk, not real risk. And so I guess maybe the risk benefit analysis that we're talking about And maybe it's not we need to kill one in a thousand rescuers or whatever that number is. I think that I, I think that number might be low. Okay. But like Arnold says, where's the pile of bodies? Are we talking actual risk? Are we talking perceived risk? Are we talking people? And I use the word ignorant in the defined sense of it. I'm not trying to pick a fight, but people are ignorant of what the actual risk is to that. So therefore it's dangerous. And so we won't do it and we'll do what we do. But at the end of the day, it might've actually been a riskier choice.
1: Yeah. We'll get in helicopters all the time in the dark to go do a rescue. Let's talk about that risk instead.
0: Yeah. And this one here, I mean, helicopter was another conversation. And I won't get into that on the podcast because I'll have to get my PP slapped. Um, But at, by the time it became dark, we don't have nods up here. We've got nods down in Vancouver, but where I live, the team's not nod trained. So there's no NVGs, no nods. We're not pulling anybody off at night, so that well, I'll just throw that out there.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm not. I'm not saying they should have used a helicopter here. I'm just saying we, you know, that it's become a norm to use helicopters to rescue. Oh, and it's and it's, w- what's the real risk versus perceived risk there?
0: And it's interesting because uh, EMBC SAR actually, I believe, has two criteria that they they're supposed to follow, and I think they have kind of gone back to it is. Uh, one of them is somebody actually injured before we let a helicopter go up. And the other one that they really look at, and there's more than just these, but these are the ones that I really kind of dive down on, you know, injury, like time injury, kind of, you know, what's the outcome basically. And the other one, what is the risk? But now we get back into this perception. What is the risk to the team if they don't use a helicopter? So Once again, though, that's subjective. Yep. Anyways, we've covered every point that I wanted to hit off on here. So, uh, is there anything else you want to add in?
1: No, I think we probably um, either bored bored people or annoyed people enough at this point. There you Uh, go. I'm excited to have this platform. Um, I know all of us have a lot to say, and I'm glad we have a lot of people who are willing to
0: listen to it. Absolutely. And I think moving forward, so for the listeners out there, you know, Craig's got some unique folks down there that he works with as well, that we'll get him to interview it on this platforms as well. And so we'll change it up a little bit as, you know, the podcast moves forward It won't just be me on here, you know, we'll get Craig doing some interviews as well for some of the folks down there. And uh, we'll throw it out as well as if you've got an interesting story that, you know, created some lessons learned, if you've got some training events, has created some lessons learned. If you're interested in discussing some of the standards and, you know, how we're getting at some of these standards, some of these discussions around perception of risk, we're interested in having you on. Reach out to us, RonaRescue.com. Go to contact us. It'll bounce off about everybody's email in the company, but but we'll all get it. Um, yeah, and we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to chat with folks that are out there. Anything else, Craig? That's it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us.
1: Uh, Yeah, I guess us is a weird way to phrase it now, but good to talk to you.
0: Yeah.